This is the Brazil Institute podcast, brought to you by the Wilson Center. I'm your host, Anya Prusa. My guest today is Nick Zimmerman, Director and Consultant at Macro Advisory Partners and former National Security Council Director for Brazil and Southern Cone Affairs. We talk about the evolving political crisis in Brazil and what it means for the Bolsonaro administration. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. So there has been a lot going on in Brazil in the last couple weeks and months. A lot of political chaos in addition to the health crisis and the economic crisis that are going on. And the political situation really seemed to come to a head when Sergio Moro, the former justice minister, resigned at the end of April. And in doing so, he also leveled serious allegations against President Bolsonaro and his family. Could you explain for our listeners what those allegations were and what the political fallout has been since then? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in short, uh, Sergio Moro essentially accused President Bolsonaro of political interference in federal police investigations, ostensibly to ob obtain access to sensitive or classified information. And he went about this by pushing Moro to dismiss his, his, his right-hand guy in the, in the justice ministry, uh, Mauricio Valeixo, who was the director of the federal police, with the idea that he would replace Valeixo uh, with a loyal ally that he could, he could trust. Now, it's an entirely different question as to how Moro's allegations actually translate into formal crimes or possible formal crimes under Brazilian law. Obstruction of justice is obviously one possible charge, but it's still a bit difficult to know the full landscape, uh, legally speaking, as the Attorney General of Brazil, Augusto Aras, hasn't formally presented anything yet. And I'm not terribly convinced, actually, that, that he ever will. So it's still a little bit of a TBD type of situation, um, but that gets at the root of, of, of the matter. And the political fallout has been real. Um, I, I agree with your assessment, really, Anya, that, that it, it did seem to be a bit of a, of a game changer. I think one of the, the first consequences, of course, is that this larger episode, it marks the end of Bolsonaro's original political project. Uh, you know, he campaigned in part on getting rid of the old style of, of governance, of, of presidential coalitionism, as they, as they call it in Brazil, that so many have pinpointed as, as being a primary cause for, for the country's political corruption problems. Uh, when Bolsonaro came in, he said he was going to refuse to do that, that he would organize coalitions around sectors and, and issue sets. And, and really, that's broken down now as he, as he has to seek support from a number of centrist parties um, because he's weakened and he's lost a lot of allies and he needs to shore up his support to avoid any potential uh, impeachment process. You mentioned impeachment, and that word has certainly been hanging in the air. There are a number of impeachment petitions currently on the desk of Rodrigo Maia, the Speaker of the Lower House in Brazil. Now, Maia has said that this is not the moment to think about impeachment, that the country needs to focus on the public health crisis. But is impeachment a real possibility? Is this something that we could be discussing a few months from now? I think it is a genuine possibility. I don't see it happening in the short term. Uh, for a number of reasons, Maya's comments, I think, being being one of them. Another is is what we just discussed, which is how Bolsonaro has has reconfigured his political alliances 
in working with the centrón or the big center um, parties, a, a group of six or seven roughly, at this point in time, there just simply aren't the votes in the lower chamber of Congress for an impeachment proceeding to, uh, to, to move forward. I think it's something that we're going to need to watch quite closely. Um, and I think history is a bit of a guide. Um, you know, less than 50% of the country still is in favor uh, of impeachment. You know, that's quite a bit lower than the polling numbers that were observed when Kohler or Gilma uh, ultimately ended up uh, impeached. Gilma uh, sat in, in, in that kind of mid-60s pro-impeachment range in, in, in the months and weeks before that proceeding actually got underway. And in the case of Kohler, uh, several decades ago, it was even higher, right? It was in the mid to high 70s. Bolsonaro still hasn't crossed that 50% threshold. He's holding on to his base in a, in a pretty strong and, and, and solid way. Um, 30% of, of, of the country having, having their back, so to speak, is, is not insignificant. Um, as the pandemic evolves, as the economic suffering evolves, depending on what happens with the municipal elections later in the year. These are all, I think, dynamics that, that one should watch closely for um, as we continue, I think, to assess what's going to be uh, an evolving situation in real time. And I really want to talk about how the pandemic has shaped the political crisis and vice versa, because they are closely intertwined at the moment. Brazil, as many news reports have noted, has the second highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases in the world. And we are seeing that the death rate uh, continues to go up. Certainly, Bolsonaro has been publicly criticized for his response to the pandemic. How is the pandemic impacting the political crisis as it unfolds? I think it's weakened him further. His approach is unpopular. People are scared. And furthermore, it's devastated the Brazilian economy, which is one of the metrics I think he's really been relying on uh, to buttress his case for re-election, even if we're a ways away from 2022. A strong economy um, is part and parcel of the broader political project. Uh, so I think that in conjunction with his controversial style of governance, uh, tendency to polarize, the pandemic is having such a profound effect on the economy um, and is traumatizing people that when you combine that with the political crisis now surrounding the, the murder allegations, it hurts him uh, in the aggregate. And I think it will continue to hurt him in part because, listen, I think there's a broader question in the world about how various countries' stimulus responses, how effective they're being in, in, in this remarkable challenge that so many countries are facing. But Brazil in particular is, is caught in a little bit of a catch-22 in terms of what it can do to, to stimulate its, its economy. There's not a lot of space in, on the fiscal policy front. You know, their debt to GDP ratio is among the highest in the region. Um, even if it had gone down a bit before the pandemic because of the significant pension reform package last year, 60 to 66% of the federal budget goes to paying federal pensions. G GDP this year, I think, is, is expected to contract by roughly 5%, but I've seen projections even go, go higher. Uh, this is going to be an ongoing source of, of political pain for Bolsonaro. And I wonder what your thoughts are on Bolsonaro's relationship with the governors and with some of the allies that he has lost in the last couple months and how that might shape his presidency, uh, not only in the short term, 
but also as we are looking towards the municipal elections and maybe even the next presidential election? There's a lot in that question. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I might go go back first to to the allegations surrounding Moro. You know, the sh- one of the shorter term, I think, political impacts of that is you've seen a bit of a cleavage between the hard right in Brazil and, and the center right. So some of the governors that you mentioned, like, you know, the governor of Sao Paulo or the governor of Rio, the response to the pandemic out of Brasilia has caused additional rifts. Uh, and that 20%, what took Bolsonaro from his base support of 30% to a majority percentage and that delivered him the presidency was not as ideologically charged uh, of a group as, as his kind of hardcore hardcore base. And they went with him in large part because of his pledge to, to clean up the, the corruption. Obviously, losing the, the anti-corruption crusader of the country in, in Sergio Moro diminishes that. You add on the differences of opinion between governors like a Joan Doria or a Witzel in, in, in Hugh, and it becomes a little bit of a Pandora's box. In terms of the approach, it strikes me actually that there are some eerie similarities with how President Trump has been responding to the, to the pandemic here in the United States, which is essentially to almost encourage de facto a patchwork of responses to facilitate placing any economic blame uh, for a rapidly deteriorating economy on governors and mayors and and try to sort of escape from some of the suffering that that so many in Brazil and for that matter here in the United States and across the world are currently experiencing because because of the virus. So going back to Sergio Moro's allegations, which you discussed, There was another pivotal moment in May when the Supreme Court released a highly talked about video recording of a cabinet meeting, which showed President Bolsonaro using swear words and pledging to protect his family from investigations. He has continued to clash with the Supreme Court in the week since. I think many are wondering whether this political crisis might become a constitutional crisis, and I would be curious to know your thoughts on that question. So I think the cabinet meeting video, the, the, the release, essentially it exacerbated the fallout that, that we just discussed. Um, and I think it also has contributed to a sense that, that Bolsonaro is increasingly weak. Um, but at the same time, it probably rallied his base. I mean, what we saw in that video was was a was a fairly charged meeting from a political ideological perspective, and I think that that kind of hardcore thirty percent that that supports the president were probably quite pleased with with a number of different facets of the conversation um, that was captured uh, in, in in the video clip. On the other hand. It validates, in some measure anyway, uh, Moru's claims, allegations against the president. And it also more generally shows a cabinet and a head of state fundamentally disinterested in the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, it's not really a topic of conversation during that meeting. It's, it's, it colors the larger environment of the conversation, but it's not the key focus. It's all about the president's enemies, grievances, cultural wars, and so on and so forth. My suspicion is that 
that video did not do Bolsonaro many favors politically outside of his base. And his base right now seems to include parts of the military, certainly if you look at his political alliances and who he is turning to as other allies have departed. The military remains kind of this constant presence in his administration. And increasingly, they are playing a role in health policy and in economic policy and and some of these other areas. Do you think that the military is uh, there to stay? Or will there be a moment uh, when they decide to break with the president? Yes, the the military mission creep, so to speak, uh, Mm -hmm. is a very real phenomenon in in Brazilian government these days. I. I think for for now, Bolsonaro still really does count on on the support of 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 the military community. I don't see that changing in in the short term. I think it's quite another question whether or not the fact that they are increasingly occupying roles in civilian ministries in and of itself is a threat to democracy. Um, and I think it probably could be argued in more way than 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 one. Um, but I believe that the military is a key component of, of Bolsonaro's coalition. It is a, culturally speaking, I think it's a, it's a space where he feels that he has a lot of trust and mutual understanding. And I don't see that changing in, in the short term. I want to change the topic a little bit uh, from specifically domestic issues in Brazil to looking more at the international landscape. Because there has been a lot of talk about the relationship between President Bolsonaro and President Trump here in the United States. And there have also been parallels if we look at some of the ways that both presidents have responded to the coronavirus pandemic. President Trump and President Bolsonaro have spoken several times since the pandemic began, and the U.S. just announced that it would send a 1,000 ventilators as well as 2 million doses of hydroxychloroquine to Brazil. Uh, But more generally, do you think there is space for U.S.-Brazil collaboration on this pandemic? Is it broader than just the personal relationship between Trump and Bolsonaro? I do have a feeling that much of the relationship, the bilateral relationship these days, does revolve around the personalities and connection between the two heads of state. And that can either work to the relationship's benefit uh, or detriment. There isn't the sort of institutional backing that comes, you know, that follows really that type of uh, of a rapport. You know, I think it's great that that the United States was able to assist on on the ventilator front. You know, there have been a number of, of press stories in, in local Brazilian media about how in 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 the race, the global race for ventilators, uh, the United States might have played a less uh, productive role in, in, in times past. So that is the type of support that that I think the United States and frankly all other countries should be lending um, to the extent that they have the capacity to do so. Um, because I think we've all learned during these last months that there's no such thing as a pandemic in just one country. Um, the fact that this assistance has come along with for lack of a better word, more politically ideological forms of, of assistance, of, of, of dubious uh, use, I think is unfortunate, um, but also reinforces the point that much of the bilateral relationship does revolve around the peculiarities of the relationship between the two countries' presidents. Thank you, Nick. It was great speaking with you. 
The Brazil Institute podcast is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org slash Brazil. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.